0: Uh, Gracious Father, please uh, do speak to us this day. Please help me to speak your word faithfully and clearly. Uh, Please help all of us to listen to your word and hear it uh, with humility, to trust it, to obey it. And please, Father, move our hearts this day uh, afresh, uh, to be full of love and wonder and worship of you. Uh, For Jesus' glory we pray. Amen. Sorry, I'm just trying to get this to s- tighten so that my iPad doesn't fall off. I think it is tightening. Anyway, cool, cool. Uh so uh, in, uh, in a previous uh, in a previous life, I was going to say that sounded. Uh, I, I don't believe in karma in previous lives, but uh, before I became a pastor, I was a trumpet player, and one of the things I played trumpet for uh, was called Handel's Messiah. If you know, you're familiar with Handel's Messiah. In 1741, Handel uh, wrote this piece, probably his most famous piece. Uh, it's in three different parts. Each part zooms in on a particular, I guess, a particular aspect of Christ's life, his ministry. Uh, and the climax of part two is the most famous bit. Uh, even if you're not into into kind of classical music at all, you probably know the Hallelujah chorus. Right? And the words for the Hallelujah chorus come right out of Revelation 19. Right? You might remember it. it's like Hallelujah. Just in case you were asleep, uh, right? Hallelujah. I was going to organise a bit of a Hallelujah chorus flash mob kind of scenario, uh, but we, maybe we'll save that for later. But uh, so yeah, that, that's the idea. Particularly at Christmas time, uh, every Christmas, uh, carols by candlelight. You know, these words are sung all around the world, and when they're sung. I hope from now on, if not already, you think of this passage. But This is the ultimate hallelujah chorus, the one that will be sung when our Lord Jesus Christ returns. Uh, Last week we looked at Revelation chapter 18 and when we saw uh, the destruction of the great city of Babylon. Remember what Babylon was? It was a symbol of the whole world system that was constructed by humanity in rebellion against God. This is self-centred, self-glorifying humanity. Humanity driven uh, by a kind of consuming desire to make a name for themselves, to see their own name up in lights. That's Babylon, right? And what we see in this passage is that that kind of human-centred worldliness is replaced by God-centred worship. That's kind of a good summary. Human-centred worldliness, Revelation 18, is replaced by God-centred worship Revelation 19. But look right at the heart of the passage in verse 10. The angel says to John, who's seeing this vision, the angel says, worship God. Worship God. That's the heart of the passage. One day, human-centered worldliness will be replaced by God-centered worship. And that leads to the first thing I want you to notice in the passage, uh, which is that God is at work through all of history to display His glory. Well, that's the big purpose of everything, the whole history of the world. God is at work to display his glory. Uh, and that, That's the, what dominates Revelation 19. Uh, uh, in verse 1, one word dominates Revelation 19. Uh, Martin's already alluded to it. Verse 1, John says, After this I heard what sounded like the roar of a great multitude in heaven shouting, Hallelujah! Salvation and glory and power belong to our God. And look in verse 4 as well, John says, The 24 elders and the four living creatures fell down and worshipped God, who was seated on the throne, and they cried, Amen, Hallelujah. Verse 9, John says, Then I heard what sounded like a great multitude, like the roar of rushing waters, and like loud peals of thunder, shouting, Hallelujah. Why? For the Lord God Almighty reigns. Hallelujah. Praise God. And, and Martin alluded to this. this. is a, I mean, in, in Christian circles, maybe you don't say hallelujah a lot. Uh, I don't tend to, just get around saying hallelujah. But, uh, but, in, uh, but in Christian circles, you'd think it's relatively common. But actually, this is the only time in the whole New Testament that the word hallelujah is used. That was surprising to me. But the only time. Right? The whole New Testament has been building to this particular climax. Right, 26 books in the New Testament, 18 chapters in the book of Revelation... The coming of Jesus to earth, dying on the cross, rising from the dead, ascending into heaven, pouring out his spirit, establishing his church. Jesus being preached to the nation, saving a people for himself from every tribe and language and tongue. All of that has happened. And after all that, now finally Jesus is returning. And all that's left to say is hallelujah, praise God, the Lord God almighty reigns. Hallelujah. Uh, Lots of people today will tell you that history is meaningless, it's purposeless, it has no particular goal. But here we see that history does have a goal. The goal to which all of history is headed is the glory of God, the praise of God, the, the worship of God. The day on which everyone and everything will cry out to God, Hallelujah, you are a glorious God, you are worthy of all praise. That's the end that this world is headed for. And some people think that's selfish. Is it selfish God created the world? Is it a bit selfish for him uh, to create the world, uh, to display his glory? Is God a little bit insecure? Maybe he's kind of got the the self-esteem, the low self-esteem epidemic that's in our culture, like God's kind of suffering from that, and so he had to kind of, of, uh, uh, what's the word, plan the whole history of the world uh, so that it would end up with people praising him? I don't think so. That's crazy. Why is it not selfish? If God is God, and if God created us to, to really live and flourish in a relationship with him, not just any relationship, but a, a relationship in which we love him and worship him and adore him, in which we glorify him, right? If all that's true, and it is, surely it's the ultimate act of selflessness. Isn't it? The ultimate act of love for, for God, not just to give us himself, but to move in our hearts to praise him to move in your heart, to glorify him, to worship him as he deserves. That's, that's the ultimate act of love for God, because it's only when you do that that you really live, that you're really free as a human being. How loving is our God that he would give us himself? What more could he give us? And so because of his great love, God works through all of history to display his incredible glory. And he works in all his people to enjoy his glory. That's the second thing. Have a look in verse 1. John says, After this, I heard what seemed to be the loud voice of a great multitude. What's this there? After this. I talked about this. Revelation 18. It's referring back to the destruction of Babylon. That world system that throughout history has tried to do what? Tried to seduce God's people into finding pleasure and satisfaction and enjoyment, ultimate pleasure and satisfaction, in the things of this world. To forget about God and to pursue uh, pleasure and satisfaction in the things of this world. And and the picture in Revelation is that right in the middle of Babylon, of that world, we have the church. And the church is saying, no. The church, uh, last week we saw Revelation 18, verse 4, uh, God calls his church out of Babylon. Babylon. The church says, no, the church says we find our deepest pleasure not in the things of this world, but in the God who made this world. In many ways, that's what we declare every Sunday when we gather to worship God. In the midst of the city of Darabin, the city of Melbourne, who, who are pursuing pleasure in all sorts of different ways, we declare that we are a people who are pursuing our ultimate pleasure and satisfaction, not in the things of this world, but in our true and living God. That's what we're declaring. As John Piper said, I read this quote during the week. I thought it was good. John Piper says, uh, Worship is the open declaration to all the powers of heaven, to all of Babylon, whether it's the world around us, that we will not prostitute our minds, our hearts, our bodies to the pleasures of this world. Though we may live in Babylon, we will not be captive to Babylonian ways. And we will celebrate with all our might the awesome truth that we are free from that which will be destroyed, right? Babylon, we saw last week, Revelation 18. It'll be thrown into the sea, never to be found again. Right? We we, uh, we celebrate the awesome truth that we're free from that which will be destroyed. Corporate worship is the flagrant, open enjoyment of God in the midst of a very seductive Babylonian culture. Now, maybe that's not how you think about you're coming to church each Sunday, it's just a bit of an effort to get here, let alone think about kind of, oh, this is my moment to declare to everyone that I'm kind of focused on gaining my pleasure and satisfaction in knowing God, not in the things of this world. Perhaps not that's not front and centre in your mind, but maybe from now on, it will be more so that as you worship God, you're looking at the pleasures of this world and saying, no, I found something better. I'm pursuing my ultimate pleasure and satisfaction, not in the things of this world, but in the God who made this world. That's why I'm here. That's why I prioritise this time. That's why I want to draw near to God. So God works through all of history to display His glory, and then He works in the hearts of His people, for the church, to enjoy His glory. So how do we respond? What do we do? Well, I want to really spend the rest of the time trying to help us to keep our eyes where they belong. Not focused on the pleasures of this world, but focused on our God. Beholding the splendor, the majesty, the incredible glory of God our Father first. This is primarily verses 1 to 10. Beholding the glory of God our Father, our God who is victorious. Look in verse 1. and We see there that salvation belongs to our God. Salvation belongs. Right? That's a cry of victory, of triumph. Right? The point is, here at the end of Revelation, we've seen lots of enemies. right, but God has defeated his enemies. God has saved his people. Right? This is a big message of Revelation. Our God wins. He wins. Revelation 4, he's seated on his throne. And he rules over all and he wins. He's victorious. Salvation belongs to our God. And He's glorious. Salvation and glory belong to our God. Uh, Sometimes you'll be watching the football and someone might say, that's a glorious goal. You're eating some food. That's some delicious food, some glorious food. It's a glorious landscape that I'm seeing. It's 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 an incredibly glorious piece of music. And those things are glorious because they, they are kind of touched by the handiwork of a glorious God. But all glory belongs to our God. And as does all power, all power belongs to him. Who else has the power to conquer Satan, the dragon, to conquer sin and death, to to rid this world of all evil and suffering and injustice? No one's got the power to do that except God. That's one of the big themes in the book of Revelation. Who is worthy to open the scroll? Only the lamb who was slain. No one's got the power to do anything about the mess in the world except God through His Son, the Lord Jesus Christ. All power belongs to Him, uh, to our God who is perfectly just. Have a look there. Uh, Verse 1 says, Hallelujah, praise God. And one of the reasons for praising God is in verse 2. For true and just are His judgments. He has condemned the great prostitute who corrupted the earth by her adulteries. He has avenged on her the blood of his servants. Now this feels a bit odd for us, right? Hearing, hearing God praised for His judgments, even vengeance. I look through our our set list of songs during the week, and we don't have a lot of vengeance songs. something for our resident songwriters to work on, but not a lot of vengeance songs in our repertoire, right? But in the book of Revelation, we often see this. God praised for his justice, for his vengeance. In part, it's because it's a real answer to prayer. You remember Revelation 6, verse 10, are the Christians who have been slain for their faith by the evil and oppressive rulers of this world. They cry out to God saying, How long, sovereign Lord, holy and true, Until you judge the inhabitants of the earth and avenge our blood. But how long, God, until you take the sword of your justice to these people who took the sword to us? That's what the cry is. We've been unjustly slain by the sword. How long till the sword of your justice comes? Here in Revelation 19, that's happening. We see later on, Christ has a sharp sword coming out of his mouth, taking the sword of God's justice to the inhabitants of the earth, so the heavens praise God for his just judgments. Likewise, Revelation 17, verse 6, where we saw last week the great prostitute, the, the rebellious world system, uh, they were they, the, the woman, you remember, she's sitting on the beast and she's drunk with the blood of God's holy people. Horrible picture, right? The, the blood of those who bore testimony to Jesus. Well, Imagine... If God did nothing about that, if God just turned a blind eye to that kind of evil and injustice in his world, we feel a little bit uncomfortable, right? But if God did nothing about that, he would not be a true or just or praiseworthy God. He wouldn't be a loving God, a good God. But here we see God will do something about that. But he will do something about it. He he will bring his true and just judgment, and for that we praise him. For his perfect justice and his eternal justice. Look in verse 3. The the smoke of God's justice goes up forever and ever. God's judgment is eternal. That's the point. It's permanent. It's final. And on the one hand, that's pretty sobering. What does it mean? It means don't mess around with God's judgment. Don't play around with sin thinking it doesn't matter. God's judgment is eternal. It's final. It's permanent. So there's no way around it. That's sobering. But it's also incredibly good, isn't it? It's good because we know that there will be a day when every injustice is put right, not just for a moment, but forever. Where justice will go on forever. It's really the day you and I have been longing for. Right, I listen to my kids. From the moment you first cried, it's not fair, isn't it? Like that, that's deeply ingrained. You don't have to teach a kid that. You didn't have to learn it. We've got this deeply ingrained sense that that there's this injustice in the world that ought to be dealt with. It's not fair. One day that hunger for justice will be satisfied forever, with God's eternal justice. That, that we praise God for that. And we praise him because he's mighty. Look in verse 6, the heavenly multitudes say, Hallelujah, for the Lord God Almighty reigns. The Lord God Almighty. We've seen that nine times in the book of Revelation. It's like John's kind of supreme title for God. And we should remember that the Roman emperor gave himself almost exactly the same title. But right. He demanded that people throughout the emperor called him our Lord and our God, right? the, the one who rules, who is God. right? And John knew that that's what the emperor required people to call him. right? He knew that. That's why he was in prison on the island of Patmos, because he refused to call the emperor that. Yet nine times in the book of Revelation, John says, I'll tell you who's really God. You see, this is pretty ballsy, right? I'll tell you who's God. I'll tell you who's Lord God Almighty. It's not the Roman emperor sitting on his throne in Rome. It's the Lord God Almighty who sits on his heavenly throne. That's the Lord God Almighty. The one who rules over heaven and earth. And his rule is sovereign. The Lord God Almighty reigns. He reigns. He reigns everywhere. I think we, Yeah, we've got to get there. Like, there's not one person or event. There's not one sickness or insect. There's not one speck of dust or drop of rain that is outside of God's sovereign reign. He reigns. And I think if we're going to live in this world with all its suffering and hardships and evil, we have to have a really big view of God like that. A God who reigns over heaven and earth, over every natural disaster. God rules over that. Over every emperor, over every prime minister, even the ones you don't like, over every president, even Mr. Trump and his friend over in North Korea. But over all evil and sickness and injustice and suffering, our Lord God Almighty reigns over all of it. There's nothing outside of his control. And that is good news because if God's not in control, who is? Someone's got to be at the steering wheel. And God is. Our Lord God, almighty reigns. Behold the glory of God our Father. And behold the glory of Christ his Son. This is from verse 11. John sees this other vision, an incredible vision of Christ. First, Christ who is faithful and true. Oh, that was unexpected. But appropriate, right? Thanks for that. Need a little uh, interlude. So Christ who is faithful and true. <laughs> That was pretty cool. Anyway, so Revelation 1, verse 5. This has been a theme right from the start of Revelation. Christ was described as what? The, The faithful witness. Revelation 1, verse 5. Likewise, chapter 3, verse 14. The faithful and true witness. The point is, right from the start of Revelation, we've been waiting for Christ to return and be faithful and true to his word. He said he loves his people, he's going to return for his people. But, but how do we know? Is, will he be faithful and true? Yes, because now he's coming. He is faithful and true to his word. And he comes to judge with justice, we're told. Christ, when he comes, will make every wrong right. And his judgment will be just and fair and impartial. And as he delivers his justice, we're told there that he will wage war against his enemies. Look at the end of verse 11. With justice he judges and wages war. In righteousness he makes war. The first time Christ came, we remember this at Christmas, right? Christ came in humility. He came as a helpless baby. He came as a suffering servant. But this time he comes in glory, in power. He comes as a warrior king. One who comes to wage war against his enemies. And rest assured that Christ will not miss anyone. He won't miss any sin. That's the point of verse 12. His eyes are like blazing fire. Christ knows and sees everything. His judgment will be comprehensive and complete. On his head he's got many crowns. This is the third time in Revelation where we've had someone, something with crowns on its head. Maybe you remember in chapter 12, verse 3, it was the dragon, right? A symbol of Satan. Uh, there John saw a sign in heaven, an enormous red dragon with seven heads and ten horns and seven crowns on its heads. So, uh, pretty impressive, seven crowns. Uh, then chapter 13, verse 1, we saw crowns on the head of the beast. John says, I saw a beast coming out of the sea. It had ten horns and seven heads. And the beast had ten crowns on its head. Even more impressive, right? Uh, but uh, now, up till now in Revelation, you see, we've had these, these fake claims to be king. The dragon being Satan, the beast being uh, evil political rulers, right? Both of them have claimed to be king. They've claimed to have this sovereign power, seven crowns, ten crowns. But now we see Christ." Christ, right? Christ, uh, who doesn't just have seven crowns or ten crowns, but many crowns. So many crowns, you can't count them. Why bother putting a number on them? That's the point here. This is God's true king, the one who really does have all authority in heaven and on earth. Uh, And the one who has a really mysterious name. Look there in verse 12. He has a name written on him that no one knows but he himself. That, that's uh, that's pretty mysterious. Uh, there's lots of debate about that, of course. But one thing we do know about names in the Bible, God's, God's got lots of different names in the Bible, uh, but the, the one thing they've got in common is that they capture a particular aspect of God's character, uh, of his glory. And I think, really, that's what's going on here. right? The, the idea is that there's, there's stuff about Christ, about who he is, about his character, his glory, that we just won't see or enjoy until we spend eternity with him until we see him face to face, as we sung earlier. And that's a wonderful thing. It's not like you know everything you're ever going to know about Christ as you sit here today. You will not even know everything when you enter into eternity, because you'll have eternity to get to know him. But That's the point of this name that we don't know, that there's mysteries and great treasures about Christ that await us. And as God's king, who uh, comes to wage war with justice, uh, you'll see from verse 13 in particular, that Christ will conquer his enemies. So it's pretty graphic, the end of that passage, isn't it? Verse 13, Christ is dressed in their robe, and the robe is dipped in blood. And that blood, it could be a reference to Christ's blood shed on the cross. That would be uh, maybe a bit more palatable, be a bit more comfortable about that. But really, in light of what follows, it's pretty clearly the blood of those he judges. And on one level, that shouldn't surprise us, right? Isaiah 63 prophesied that one day God's king would come. You can look it up later on. I'll read it now. But Isaiah 63 said God's king would come, this kind of messianic warrior. He would be robed in splendor, striding forward in greatness, proclaiming victory, mighty to save, with garments red. This is back, way back in Isaiah 63. Garments red, blood spattered garments. Why? Why, Isaiah? Because of treading down the winepress of God's wrath. That's what's going on here, isn't it? Christ is coming as God's true king to conquer God's enemies. To conquer everyone who's lived their life in opposition to God and his people. In opposition to Christ, God's king. Because Christ is the word of God. See that there? The word of God. Just as I reveal myself to you by my words that I speak, God reveals himself to us uh, by the words that he speaks to us. In particular, the word. The word of God, Christ. The one who's the ultimate revelation of God. So if you reject Christ, the, the ultimate word of God, you will be judged by Christ. By the very word that you've rejected. So here, kind of at the end of verse 13 and 14, the scene is set for a major battle, right? We we're expecting a major battle. But really what follows, it's a bit of a non-event, isn't it? It's a bit anticlimactic. like It's really, in the face of the glory of Christ, it's a no contest. Christ strikes down the nations with his sword, and it's over. It's just over. He's defeated his enemies. So he rules them, we're told, with an iron scepter. Uh, last week I read Psalm 2. Uh, Psalm 2, uh, the, the, the nations gather together in opposition to Christ, God's King. Uh, but from Psalm 2 verse 9 we read uh, that Christ will break them with a rod of iron and dash them to pieces like pottery. Right? Everyone who's proudly taken their stand against Christ, who who've shaken their fist at Him, all of them will be judged by Christ and they'll experience God's wrath. At the end of verse fifteen, we see that Christ treads the wine, price of, uh, the wine press of the fury of the wrath of God Almighty, and that kind of quite horrifying picture is expanded in verses seventeen to twenty-one, isn't it? That angel that calls the birds to swoop down and feast on the flesh, feast on the flesh of kings and generals and mighty men, of horses and riders, of all people, slave. And free, great and small, anyone who's lived their life resisting Christ's rule. Christ brings God's wrath against sinful men and women who have rejected him. There's no way around that. He also brings God's wrath against Satan's servants. Remember from chapter 12, we've been introduced not just to Satan, the red dragon, but also to his servants, his little minions, his evil minions in the world, the beast, the false prophet, Babylon. We've introduced to all of them and what we see from last week and this week and next week is one by one, Christ is systematically destroying them. Right, last week he destroyed Babylon. Here he destroys the beast and the false prophet. Uh, next week he'll get the dragon into the lake of fire. Right? The point is that all of them are completely destroyed by Christ, preparing the way for the new heavens and new earth where there'll be no evil, not even the potential for evil. But, yeah, but this is a, it's a kind of really confronting picture of the eternal torment of God's judgment. As people, as Satan's servants, are thrown into the fiery lake of burning sulfur. But one thing's for sure, isn't it? That when Christ returns, there'll be no doubt who's king. Uh, Charlie's two years old. Uh, in our house at the moment, there's a tussle about who's the boss. <laughs> right, there's a little bit of a kind of battle of the gods in the house who is the boss? And, uh, and there's a bit of that, it feels like there's a bit of that tussle, but on, that last, on this day, there'll be no doubt of who's the king. Right, verse 16, on his robe and on his thigh, he has this name written, King of kings and Lord of lords. Absolutely no doubt who's king. And anyone who's rejecting him as king is thrown in the lake of burning sulfur. So how do we respond to, to these incredible visions of God our Father and of Christ his Son? Three things. First, we take refuge in Christ. Take refuge in Christ. Psalm 2 verse 10 says, Therefore, you kings, be wise, be warned, you rulers of the earth. Serve the Lord with fear and celebrate his rule with trembling. Kiss his son, or he will be angry and your way will lead to your destruction, for his wrath can flare up in a moment. Blessed are all who take refuge in him. But this is a confronting picture of God's wrath in Revelation 19. We've seen lots of them in the book of Revelation. If you want to be safe from God's wrath, you must take refuge in Christ. So let me ask, have you done that? Have you taken refuge in Christ? Have you trusted that on the cross, Christ bore all of God's wrath for you? He drank the cup of God's wrath to the very last drop for your sins in your place, so that if you trust in him, You can be blessed by God rather than judged. Blessed are all, Psalm 2 says, who take refuge in Christ. Let me urge you to take refuge in Him. And if uh, if you take refuge in Christ, if you know that that Christ is your only safe hiding place from God's wrath, you will rejoice in Christ. You'll rejoice in His return. Verse 7, let us rejoice and be glad and give Him glory. Why Four, because the wedding supper of the Lamb has come. I remember my wedding day, uh, 25th of November, 2006. had to look it up during the week. No, I didn't really, uh, but I I do remember it. Uh, It was a day of real incredible joy. Very hot, but a day of real joy. uh, Because I was finally being united with Gabby. It was a wonderful thing. Gary's my best friend. I loved her. I wanted to spend my life with her. An uh, incredible joy to finally be united with her. That's, that's the imagery here. Like Christ, the Lamb of God, the one who laid down his life for his people, for us, for his bride, is finally being united with them. Rejoice, for the wedding supper of the Lamb is here. Uh, and notice down in verse 9 that instead of the church being the bride at the wedding, uh, we become the guests. I think this is common in apocalyptic, these kind of mixed metaphors. We have the lamb and the lion. And we've got kind of all of a sudden we're the, the bride, but we're also the guests of the wedding. Now, the angel says, Write this blessed are those who are invited to the wedding supper of the Lamb. I mean, there are some good wedding invites. I've got a couple of weddings coming up. And I'm pleased to be invited. But this is the ultimate wedding invitation, isn't it? Right? Isaiah 55. God says come all you who are thirsty come to the waters and you who have no money come buy and eat. Come buy wine and milk without money and without cost. Why spend money on what is not bread and your labor on what does not satisfy? Listen, listen to me and eat what is good and you will delight in the richest of fare. This is the invitation God gives us to this ultimate banquet. This incredible wedding supper of the Lamb. And it's incredible because it costs us nothing absolutely free because Christ, the Lamb of God, has already paid the cost. And so we can come to this great feast where our souls will finally delight in the richest fare. We'll be completely satisfied. And that's something great to look forward to. But like all weddings, it's something we've got to be ready for. Look in verse 7. For the wedding supper of the Lamb has come, and his bride has made herself ready. Uh, imagine if on our wedding day, Gabby and I, oh, I was kind of all ready to go up the front, had my groomsman, was all suited up, kind of celebrant, all ready to go, and someone comes running down the aisle, it's not Gabby, but someone else, saying, I'm sorry, but Gabby's not ready yet. Why, she she needs more time. How much time? I'm like, like, like That just typically doesn't happen at weddings, doesn't it? It's the job of the bride to be wedi- ready on the wedding day. So how do we get ready as the bride of Christ? Right here, we're supposed to make ourselves ready. Oh, we'll look in verse eight. Fine linen, bright and clean, was given her to wear. Fine linen stands for the righteous acts of God's holy people. So that, that's not too confusing. Right where we get ready by making sure we're clothed in righteousness, holiness, purity. Right, how does that happen? Is it something that we do for ourselves, or something that someone else does for us? Well, it seems to be both, doesn't it? Although it's pretty important that you get the order of that right. Because first, in the middle of verse 8, have a look in the middle of verse 8, God gives us. Finally, then bright and clean was given her to wear. God gives us fine linen, bright and clean. That's a picture of the perfect and pure and holy kind of righteousness of Christ. The life that you can be clothed in as a gift if you trust in Christ. On the cross, Christ was clothed in our sinful and dirty and, and impure, filthy clothes so that by faith in him, we can be clothed in his clean and pure and holy and righteous clothes. That's the picture here. So this must come first. This righteousness is a gift that God gives us. We receive this righteousness from God, an incredible gift. How do we respond to that gift? Well, we live lives of righteousness. That's how we respond. John says that this fine linen represents not just Christ's righteous acts, the ones we've been given, but our righteous acts. We get ready for Christ's return by living out who we are as God's people. In Christ, we are righteous. It's a gift from God, an amazing grace. But in response to that, we seek to live righteous lives. We saw last week, we're called out from the world to be God's holy and distinct people. And what's the assurance here? It's that if we do that, we will reign with Christ will reign with Christ forever. Verse 14, When Christ comes, following him will be the armies of heaven, riding on white horses, dressed in fine linen, white and clean. Notice that, that these heavenly armies are wearing exactly the same clothes as God's people back in verse 8. There's a bit of debate, it could include some angels too, but I reckon with that connection, it's pretty safe to say that when Christ returns as God's holy people, will be caught up with him to reign with him forever and ever in glory. And if you're not satisfied to get it from this verse, there's plenty of verses where that's true. Right? But I reckon it is true here. I so see here we have the ultimate hallelujah chorus. The ultimate hallelujah chorus. We see God working through all of history to display His glory. And we see Him working in all of us, His people, to enjoy His glory. And I pray that even this day, but all the more, that we can be a church that does that that beholds the glory of God our Father, enjoys Him, that beholds the glory of Christ His Son, that enjoys Christ, that takes refuge in Christ, that rejoices in Christ, that makes ourselves ready for Christ's return. Let's pray. Our gracious Heavenly Father, we thank you for this ultimate Hallelujah Chorus. We pray that you would impress this word upon our hearts, uh, that you would help us to see... uh, your glory, our Father, all the more clearly, and the glory of Christ, your Son, by the power of your Spirit. And We pray that as our hearts are more and more captured by enjoyment of you, our true and living God, that we would be able to turn away from the pleasures of this world and live as your holy and distinct people. For Christ's glory we pray. Amen.